Well, uh, I want to invite you to grab your beverages and uh, come on back and take your seat as we continue with our time together this morning. Uh, my name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge, and we're privileged to have you with us uh, together this morning as we move into our time of teaching and then respond uh, in worship. And I don't know, I'm going to give you a little sort of a behind-the-scenes sort of look at into Pastor Keith's world and my world, uh, and you may not think about this very much, like how do they actually go about thinking or preparing for messages and, uh, that, that are shared on Sunday morning. So this past week I was working on a message and studying and reading and writing and thinking it all through. And so uh, I got to Friday and things were moving along all right. And uh, just for what, whatever reason, the more I worked at it, just the less that it sort of settled uh, with me. And so as we moved into our teaching series and we organized it, uh, I was supposed to teach on the uh, nature and purpose of the church and was looking at the way that that's framed in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But so Friday afternoon, as I was working across the finish line on that one, uh, I went into Pastor Keith's office. I did something I rarely remember doing. I said to him, you know what? I'm not going to preach this message on Sunday. And his eyes got big, like, so does that mean I'm supposed to be preaching on Sunday and I missed the memo? I said to him, you know, the more I think about this, the more I work and pray about this and discern, like, I'm just really struggling with it. We pray all the time, like, God, if you want us to say something else, you know, give us the wisdom and let us, let us say that. But we, we kind of rarely do that, you know, like we're more methodical about stuff. And so when I got there, I just, I said to Pastor Keith, listen, the more I think about this, I'm going to, this is like, I'm going to do pastoral robbery. I'm going to steal your text from you uh, on Friday afternoon from your next week text. And so just straight up pastoral robbery, he said, okay, sure. And graciously said yes to that. So thanks for that, Keith. I appreciate it. Because I think he, he would have said yes no matter what, because otherwise I would have been like, okay, so you're preaching on Sunday, so get working on that. <laughs> uh, but as I looked, and part of what was bubbling up in my heart is this notion that when it comes to understanding the purpose and the mission and the nature of the church, the Bible uses uh, word pictures to try and help us understand how to get at that. And in fact, if you read through the New Testament, there's 96 different word pictures to help us and images used to describe not only what the church is, but then how we are to work together and live together. Now, trust me, this morning is not going to be an exploration of all 96 of those images. There's no way we could do that. But uh, the writer of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, is lands and, and circles around three very core images to what the church is supposed to be. And so I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles uh, there this morning, as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And Paul, the author of this book, he's writing a letter to a church, and under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is trying to help them correct some of the messy thinking that's going on in their church. 
and in the church in the first century in the city of Corinth. And one of the things that he sees happening is that they're, they're rushing to kind of uh, glom onto uh, those who are in leadership in the church. They're kind of creating a bit of a culture, a celebrity culture a bit. And he needs to correct this a little bit. And so one of the things that he sees, he writes at, uh, starts in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 6 through to verse 9. And I want you to look for the word picture that Paul uses to describe what's happening here in the church. He says, listen, I planted the seed in your hearts. The seed is the message of the gospel, the truth that he preached to them. We talked about that two weekends ago on Easter Sunday. So I planted the seed in your hearts. Then Apollos came and watered it or nurtured it, but it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow, seed of faith growing in their hearts, in their church. The one who plants and the one who waters work together with the same purpose, and both will be rewarded for their hard work. For we are both God's workers, and you are God's field. So what's the first word picture that he uses? It's a a field. A field. He says the church is like a field. Well, why would Paul use that image to try and help understand what's going on in the life of a faith community? Well, just like Jesus taught about the kingdom of God in parables, Paul here wants his images to carry along both a narrative, so the story of his experiences with them, but also a teaching point that he wants them to remember. Not only something of a a frame of reference, an image, but also a change in behavior for them. A story that can be remembered and an action that can change behavior. So if you take a narrative, the story, and a metaphor, you put those together, you have the word narrophor. So Pastor Keith and Tammy in the office accuse me all the time of making up words. And so I point this word out, narrophor, as a justification that I am not the only person who makes up words. This word was made up by uh, Leonard Sweet in his most recent book. And he was successful in getting it past both an editor and a publisher. So it must be a real word because it's in a book that was written, right? So therefore, that gives it some credence, the, the word narrophor. So I'm going to just do what Len Sweet does and just take that word and make it up this morning. And so we're going to talk about Paul's, three of Paul's, narrophors this morning, the narratives that he uses and then the metaphors that wedded together. Uh, And so the first one that he uses, the first narrophor, is that the church is like a field. Well, why is this helpful for us? So what? The church is like a field. Well, remember what we just read, what is the church fighting about? They're fighting about who's in charge of the church, Is it Paul? Is it another leader and teacher who came along named Apollos who was very helpful in their development and growth? And so some in the Corinthian church are saying things like, oh man, I love Paul. Paul founded this church. 
He's an apostle. I mean, I love his teaching. Uh, He writes us these great letters. Like, I'm a Paul person all the way. Love Paul. And other people in the church are saying, okay, yeah, but like that Paul guy left us years ago and went on to do who knows what else. Apollos has been around here for a long time now. And like, I love Apollos' teaching. I love the way he cares for us. Like, I, I mean, this Paul guy, all he ever does is write us letters telling us what we're doing wrong. Like, Apollos has been working his tail off here for years. And like, that has what made this church what it is today. Forget Paul. I'm about Apollos. This church belongs to Apollos. And this, I love what Paul does with his narrator. then. He uses it to kind of just blow apart their argument. Paul says to them, oh, you want to talk about who owns the church? Okay, let's talk about that. Well, if do we think of the church as a field, then we could think of me as the one that planted the seeds, Paul says, the seeds of the gospel, saving face. And then, yes, Apollos watered them and was helpful in nurturing those things. The seed of truth in your hearts that's grown and that's taken spiritual root in your lives. But if we want to talk about who's in charge, like that's neither of us. That role belongs to God. Look how many times in these verses Paul points them beyond the workers to the field owner. In verse 5, he says, Apollos, Paul, hey, we're just servants. Like we just, all we did is we received our assignment, our assigned work from God who's the one that owns the field, and then we just started to do what God assigned us to do. In verse 6, again in verse 7, he says, it's not important who plants, who waters. The important thing is God, because God is the one who makes things grow. Who's in charge? God gives the assignments. God is the one who makes things grow. Paul says, we don't make the church grow. We don't make your faith grow. We do the work that God gives us to do, and there is work to be done. We don't just sit around and hope and pray and think, oh, maybe faith will grow in people's hearts. We work hard at it, he says. But in verse 8, he reminds people that they'll be rewarded for their hard work as well. But ultimately, Paul says, listen, we can do all the planting we want. We can do all of the watering that we want. We can do all of the work that we want. But ultimately, it's the Lord alone who is the one who brings growth in his field. And that's true in our individual lives. And it's also true in the life of a church. Because ultimately, it's our job to work and partner with God, but it's not our field. God owns the field. We have the privilege of managing and working in it. And the declaration really here would be similar to exactly what Jared and Ruth Ellen declared when they dedicated Anthony to God. He said, it's not ours. We're privileged to partner with God in this, but ultimately God owns and we manage. And similar for the church, the church belongs to God. And this is a bit of a, can be a bit of a challenge for us and for me because sometimes our language gives us away. We'll say things like, well, my church does things this way or at our church, we do this or we do that. And sometimes those pronouns, those are pronouns, right? My, our, 
think so. Sometimes those are completely innocent. Sometimes they're not as innocent. They're indicative of a possessiveness that's really an affront to the true owner. See, the church doesn't belong to those who work in the field. The church, both universal and this church, belongs to the field owner, God. Jericho Ridge does not belong to the people who've attended here since the start 10 years ago. It doesn't belong to the people who give time and money to this ministry. The assignments and the outcomes for Jericho Ridge are all firmly in the hands of God as the owner. The assignments and the outcome for Jericho Ridge are firmly in the hands of God as the owner. Everything else flows from there. Structure flows from there. Those who lead, lead under the authority uh, of Jesus as the chief shepherd of his church. Decisions flow out of there. We ask What would the owner want us to do in these circumstances? Would the owner be pleased if we invested ourselves as a faith community here? Our attitudes flow from this place. And this is where it pushes us to think. If God assigns the work for you and me, if he is in charge of the outcomes and he makes things grow and it's his field and things go well, then we don't get to brag. We have nothing to brag about. And if things are hard, but we are being faithful to our assignment, then we have nothing to fear or worry about. And this should produce a humility and confident trust in God, in us. Because we're called to serve well and with diligence and to pray hard and invest in with passion the gifts that God gives to each and every one of us. But we're not called to do that with a burden of ownership. Or control. The church does not belong to us. God owns, we manage. In his commentary on 1 Corinthians, uh, Dr. Gordon Fee points out that the sentence construction in the original language that Paul wrote this in Greek makes this so clear that nobody could miss it. And so what happens is when you're taking, uh, like for those of you who are linguists or know different languages, when you're taking one language and translating it to another, sometimes if you just take the words and keep them in the same order, it's a little bit wooden or stilted in the way that it comes across. But if you do this with this sentence of verse 9 in Greek, so verse 9 says, one who plants, one who waters. We are both God's workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. If you take just the Greek and translate it into English well, it reminds me of uh, someone. Uh, and so we'll call this uh, the gospel according to Star Wars because this reminds me of uh, Master Yoda because the sentence reads like Yoda speaks. If you were to take this verse and just read it out in English, it would say, God's we are being fellow workers. God's field, God's building you are. See, the emphasis there is on what God is doing, not what the workers are doing, not what the builders are doing. God's building you are. God's we are as people who serve together. And Paul then doesn't waste any time. He just goes right on to his next narrow four. He butts it right up against this one of the field. And it's 
the nerephor of a building. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. You are God's building. And because of God's grace that has been given to me, Paul says, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. So he balances humility there, God's grace, and also his skill set, that builder. Now others are building on it. But whoever is building on this foundation should be very careful. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that we already have, that of Jesus Christ. So his next narrative is of a building. And as a church, Paul says, you, Jericho, are God's building. Now, Pastor Keith pointed this out last weekend, that this can give us language confusion and can trip us up a little bit because we use the word church in so many different ways. Sometimes we do use it quite actively to describe a building. We say, oh, what's that building up there on 96 and 210? We say, oh, that's a church. Or we'll say things like, well, what church do you belong to? And there we're trying to establish like what kind of church, like a denominational family or a style of church. Or we say, I'm going to church today, by which we usually mean a service of worship. But when Paul says the church is like a building, he's using a construction or architectural metaphor. And he uses that actually a lot of other places in his teaching and in his writing. Paul speaks of Christ as the foundation or the cornerstone in places like Acts chapter 4. And in Ephesians, he talks a lot about growth in the spiritual life being like a process of building a house or a building. Or he talks about you as God's family. You're being built together in Christ Jesus. Well, what's he getting at with his building metaphor? If in the field, Paul's saying to them, listen, the field, I want you to remember who's in charge, and it's not you. The building metaphor... Paul is driving at, seems to me, the question of what is the plan? What's the plan? Is there a blueprint for building this thing called the church? Did God give us any instructions that we would want to follow as the one who laid the foundation? And it's a very legitimate question. And it's one that, truth be told, has been argued and fought about vociferously throughout history. The question that a lot of times that gets um, people riled up is, is there a biblical way to do church? And this has been the source of splits and divisions, and it just gets messy. One group looks at things and says, well, of course there's a way to do church. And so they set it up in this way. They look at the core elements or marks of the church and define those. And another group says, hold on, you've left something out. Or no, we totally disagree with you on those issues. And churches and denominations and groups have gotten into lots of controversy with each other about this issue. There's a lot of things that could be said about that. Maybe you've been part of discussions in the recent history of the North American church with even models and arguments about, well, are we a church that is seeker-sensitive? Are we a church that's organic or missional or simple? Are we attractional? Are we this? Are we that? Are we purpose-driven? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Part of that is trying, people trying to wrestle with, like, 
what's the plan for this thing that God has entrusted to us to be building? When we were launching Jericho Ridge 10 years ago, we had to wrestle with these questions when we planted out of North Langley Community Church. And the launch team talked a lot about those questions. And one of the things that we kept coming back to again and again is we kept saying, the church in some ways needs to be shaped by the mission that God has given to us and the people that God has surrounded and entrusted us with. And so what would the shape of a church take that would reach people whom God is bringing to this area? What would leadership in that church look like? What would gatherings feel like? And then last year, as an elders team, we spent a number of times together praying and asking and searching and discussing about what would that look like in this coming season in the life of Jericho? What would God have for us in this time, in this place, in this city? I can't offer a full summary or perspective on those discussions this morning, but Paul in his text, seems to be driving at a few key things that however else you answer those questions, you have to take some of the things that he points out into consideration because they're commonly understood and practiced by churches around the globe and through history. As a part of his plan, Paul says, look in verse 10, because of God's grace to me, I've laid the foundation. And when he's saying God's grace to me, he says, because of the gifts that God has given to me by his grace. Paul is saying God has given to his church both gifts and then also roles. So Paul looks at his own life and says, I have been given God's grace, and part of that grace involves this skill set which I put to work in building and growing the church. And we can trace this through Paul's story in the book of Acts. And we see resonance there that God did indeed gift him as uh, a good foundation layer, or we might use the word church planter. We see in Ephesians chapter 4 that Paul says, God has given things to his church. He's given uh, apostles, he's given prophets, he's given pastor teachers and evangelists and elders, and some of those are gifts and some of those are roles, and he's given them for the building up, he says in Ephesians 4.20, of the church. And so God has given certain things as a part of his plan, both people and roles to his church to accomplish the things that he has called us to accomplish. I'm deeply grateful that in Jericho's history and in our current reality, God has graced us and gifted us with people who have stepped into both roles and just serving in the life of our city and in this place that have the gifts and the roles and the skills are necessary. When we launched, I think about how God brought around uh, Jericho as a community, a whole group of people with this kind of entrepreneurial uh, set of a bent and an entrepreneurial spirit. And they love that excitement and that push of getting things off the ground and something new. And as that phase felt like it was finishing, some of those people transitioned because they'd laid a foundation and now others were coming behind them to lay and build on it. In this season, we have people like our current elders team, Ralph and Karen and Tyler and David, 
and their gifts and their skill set, God is using to accomplish his purposes at this juncture in the life of Jericho Ridge. And so I want to encourage you that this is not just true of those in leadership. This is true for everyone that God has brought into his church. That God has brought you to Jericho at this time for a purpose. To be part of building this church his church in this season of your life and ours. And I believe that God has given you, each of you, a unique set of gifts and passions. And it's no accident that he's given those to you and brought you into the life of this place at this season to walk together. And so I want you to ask yourself, what gifts do I have and what role then might God be calling me to play in this place in this season. We're going to explore this more when we come to Paul's teaching at the end of the book of 1 Corinthians about spiritual gifts. He spent several chapters on it. But I want you to be thinking about that now because God has placed you here for a reason in whatever season that we journey together. And it doesn't mean that you'll be here forever. Paul laid a foundation and then he moved on because he had fulfilled the role that God had called him to for that season in the life of the church at Corinth. But he understood his role. He understood his gifts. He understood how to apply them in ways that matched up with what the church needed at that particular period in its life. And so Paul was calling others to step in and do the same. And the other thing that Paul's communicating to them with this narrow is that you don't just then get to sort of pick and choose how You want to build. You build on a solid foundation, yes, and the foundation gives us both a sense of what to build on, but also how to build on it. Because God has given the church both a foundation and also an ethic or a a way of thinking about our life together. So we've talked about the foundation two weeks ago at Easter. The foundation, the church is birthed and built on the message of the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And this forms our message, this shapes our mission and everything that we do. But Paul's going to warn the church in Corinth in the following verses that if they don't build in a way that honors the instructions that Jesus left for his church, or if they build in a manner that's not consistent with the ethic and character of Jesus, an ethic of love for people, that this will be a problem. How you build is as important as what you build. And there's some great guidelines and questions for life together that Paul's going to expound upon more as we get into the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians. So let me sketch them out for you real briefly. Uh, When you go onto a construction site, uh, when we uh, built our house or when uh, we were on site here observing some of the building that was going on at the event center as God uh, was a privilege to allow us to be a part of that. There would always be like a sign on the when entrance of the construction site. And there were like a site rules sign. You know, wear your safety equipment, etc., etc., right? How many of you have seen these on construction sites? Right? These warning signs. Notice all visitors report to office or whatever they are. Now, the reason that they put these signs up and the reason that Paul gives warnings in these following verses is that if you don't follow them, you can get yourself into trouble. You know, just like this guy did by not following the instructions on his construction site in Manchester in the UK. Uh, and 
a, a, a scholar by the name of uh, Joseph Hellerman, as he studied and looked at the 96 different word pictures in the New Testament for the church, he isolated some common characteristics of, so what does this life together look like? What does it mean to build on the foundation of Christ in a way that's consistent with how that foundation was laid? So we might say that these are God's blueprints for life together on the building site, if we think of the narrow of the church as a building. The first one that's consistent, whether you use the image of family or field or building or the next one he's going to get to or body, is this notion of sharing together and sharing our stuff together, an ethic of generosity in life together. That's part of the site rules for building. The next one is sharing our hearts with one another. Over and over again in the book of 1 Corinthians, you hear Paul just pouring out his heart for the church and saying, oh, guys, I wish that we, I was there. We could talk about this in person. We share our hearts with one another. For us at Jericho, that's expressed in our value of authentic community. We have an authenticity or a desire for an ethic of authenticity. The other one uh, that may be surprising about the different narrophores that are used or the images is that we stay, we embrace the pain, and we grow up with one another. There's an ethic of community that ought to pervade life together on the building site. And that ethic of community isn't just when things are going well. There's an ethic of community that when one part of the body hurts, Paul says, others hurt with it. And so we're invited to share life with each other. And we're invited to speak into each other's lives and invite each other to speak into our decisions and actions in ways that help shape us into the people that God wants us to be. And then the ethic that God calls us to live is setting an example by how we live for a watching world, an ethic of invitation, an ethic of evangelism. Do you remember how excited that you got as a kid when you went to school and you were doing show and tell and you were supposed to bring something to show and tell that you had made yourself? So not just something you found in your room, but something like you were really proud of. And you wanted to tell everybody about how awesome this thing was. Well, interestingly enough, Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 uses the exact same language to describe the way that God feels about his church. Ephesians 3.10 says, God's purpose is to use the church to display to the world that is watching the rich variety of his wisdom. The church is like God's show and tell project. The church is God's world-changing social experience of bringing unlikes and difference, people who are not the same, to the table to share life with each other as a new kind of family. And when this happens, because it doesn't happen outside of the walls of the church in very many places, we see it in South Africa fracturing. When this happens in the church, we show that the world, what love and justice and peace and reconciliation and life together are designed by God 
to be. The church is God's show and tell for the world to see how he wants us to live as a family. The church is God's show and tell project. And that's why how we do life together at Jericho matters. It matters how we handle conflict with each other and disagreements. It matters how we relate to other churches here in our city. It matters how we care for each other in times of need. Because people ought to be able to look at our corporate life together and say, that's different. I want something like that in my life. I want to be a part of that. I want to have people around me pray for me when I'm sick. I want to work together to serve people who are poor and make a difference in the world. I want people who are so vastly different than me with different in their gifts or life stage or race or education level to look me in the eyes and tell me that they are here for me and that they are here for my growth and that they are for me. God's express plan is that he would do this in and through the church, and that's why God loves his church so much. I want my heart and my life to be invested in things that matter to God. And that's why despite whatever challenges or celebrations that we face together, Jericho, as a community of faith, I want and continue to want to be a co-builder together with you because God is building his church. And he's calling us to be workers in his field. He's calling us to be co-laborers on his job site. And Paul's last narrow four comes into play in the subsequent verses. And like the site rules, it comes with a warning. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, Hey gang, do you realize that all of you together are the temple of God, that the Spirit of God lives among or in you. And God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. The church is a field. The church is a building. The church now is a temple. What does Paul mean by this? Well, the word picture of the church as a temple would have different meanings for those who heard it because those who came out of a Jewish background would have an immediate narrator and a connection with the story of Israel in the Old Testament. Oh, yeah, the temple, that's a place where God dwells or inhabits. And the temple, yeah, right, that's the place where God intended it to be a light to the nations. But the story of the Old Testament in some ways is Israel's failure to live up to that mission in a full way. And so with the advent in the New Testament of the church, God continues his project, but he's doing it now with the church as his multi-ethnic family. People from every race, every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And so look, for example, with me at how Paul starts the, verse, uh, the very book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, 
verse 2, he says, I'm writing to you, God's church in Corinth, and I'm writing to all you have, who have been called by God to be his own holy people, a new people. He made you holy by means of Christ Jesus, just as he did for all people everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. For those gathered in the church at Corinth who came out of a Jewish background, this was very difficult for them to reconcile. It was hard for them to wrestle with the fact that God was uniting people in his family that didn't share ethnicity or lineage with them, but that it was built now on this sense of shared professed faith in Christ as Lord. But if this was hard for Jews and people who shared that uh, ethnicity and that background, it was very hard also for Gentiles or non-Jews. Because for those from a Gentile background, when Paul says to them, the church is like a temple of God, they would immediately think, right, the temples here in our city of Corinth. And Corinth had tons of them. You can go there and visit some of the ruins of them still today. And they were pagan temples. And they would go in the city to worship at these temples. And so those who were um, more Gentile or grew, grew up in Corinth and then professed faith in Jesus as Lord thought, right, temple, that's where a place we go all to get together and you worship. And here's where Paul pushes against the grain in their own culture and in ours as well. Because in both the Jewish understanding and the Gentile understanding, the temple was not a place for individual worship, but a place for the community. So Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, powerfully and directly, the, the Spirit of God lives among you, he says, when you gather together. So this is not a statement, he says, the Spirit lives in you about the individual a person of faith who follows Jesus and Christ names Christ as Lord, who is filled by the Holy Spirit. That's true, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. He says the Spirit lives amongst you when you are together. When we gather in Jesus' name, we experience the transforming power and presence of God by his Holy Spirit. Because when you said yes to God, you didn't just say yes to an individual relationship with him. You said yes to being a part of God's family. And so the outcome of understanding the call that God has made and you saying yes to that under this narrow for the church as temple is that you're part of and called into not only vertical relationship with Jesus, but also his family, the body of and this for them as it is for us can be a radical notion because one of the core purposes that god uses his church for is in that process of community to shape us and our lives together as disciples and that's why you can't be a christian in isolation and not part of god's family because God calls us into community not to make us happy, but to make us holy, to shape us by his Holy Spirit, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, to transform us, 
to shape us by the Spirit as we gather with others who can help us in our journey and who have differing opinions than us and experiences and expressions. And you might say, okay, well, that's interesting that God's design and desire then is as we gather to transform us. Well, what if I don't experience that then? Is there some defect in what's happening? I love what Erin Lane says uh, in her book, Lessons in Belonging from a Church-Going Commitment-Phobe. And she says, what if I don't experience God when I get together in community? I like what she says. She says it this way, to show up in a place of worship is no guarantee that transformation will happen or that I will live any differently as a result or that I will be made well by my prayers, or that even I will find a community who cares. Nor is it to say that because God promises to show up here with me, that God will not show up there with you. What I mean when I say that God shows up in a particular place is that I'm able to witness the presence of God palpably, both because the biblical witness tells me this is where my people have known God to dwell, and because my present witness shows me how my people make an invisible God visible. By showing up in community at church week after week, my body begs a witness greater than its own two eyes can see. And it says, I cannot do this alone, even though I try. We can't do this on our own. We need each other. Even though we often try, that's what the church is designed to assist us with. It's part of the reason we exist as Jericho, becoming and making disciples together who are growing and building and worshiping and over time and with the help of the Holy Spirit and one another, becoming the people that God wants us to be. And as a gathered community, when we do that, we proclaim and declare unity and peace and we identify with Christ, the one to whom we belong. As we do life together, we're strengthened for the work and mission as we contribute to the ministry that God has called each of us to. And as the Spirit fills and empowers us collectively, we go out individually into the worlds as one who are sent We're laborers in God's field to live out a missionary purpose of compassion and justice and witness and proclamation, and we can't do that alone. See, the messy part comes as we begin and continue to live out that which God has already declared us to be. Paul says, as a church, you are God's holy and loved people. You are workers in his field and co-laborers on his job site. You are worshipers in his temple. And that is a high and holy calling. And it's not something we can do on our own. We need each other. And the world needs to see it. Because the world needs to see people who are living something different. The world needs to see the wonder and beauty of God-possessed personalities, of men and women 
with the life of God filling them and flowing out of them who practice the presence of God and consequently make it easier for others to believe that God exists. It's an incredibly messy task, but it's one that we're called to individually and corporately. Let me pray with you, and then we'll respond in worship together. God, you have given us as individuals assignments from you. You've given us communally as your church an assignment from you. And just like Jared and Ruth Ellen declared their desire to be found faithful in that, God, we declare our desire to be found faithful in the things that you have called us to, the purposes and the mission and the plan that you have for us. But we just can't do it on our own. And so we repent of trying. We, Father, would ask and invite by your Spirit you to move among us in power to so fill and transform our hearts that we would be ambassadors for you. We've already sang today, God, that there's work to be done in our city. And we believe that you have more work for us to do here as a church. And so, God, we want to commit ourselves to that. We want to invite you to fill and empower and equip us for that because it's your kingdom that we're building. It's your church. And so we want to labor under no illusions of our own initiative and strength. We surrender to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. We say amen.